Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. time for another episode of the TC Live podcast on the Tennis Podcast Network. Mitch Michaels here hosting as always live from the new building in Exposition in Santa Monica. We have switched studios and we're honored to break it in with uh, this week's guest. Second time on the show, Leif Shiris, the man of many accolades. He's a broadcaster, former player, conqueror of Yvonne Lendl. Beat him. We're not going to go over how many times, but he beat him. He has a win there. So uh, Leif. Always good to talk with you. Uh, first question, are you a member of any more Hall of Fame since the last time we chatted? <laughs> I don't know. Right now, the count's at two, although they haven't uh, allowed me into the, the Newport International Tennis Hall of Fame. I still have to buy a ticket there, but I am in the Midwest Tennis Hall of Fame and the College Tennis Hall of Fame. But I feel like uh, I'm on a distinguished list being the first man to do a podcast out of the new offices here. So thanks for inviting me. The new building, right? some pretty impressive digs. We're still trying to figure our way out. It's like, <laughs> it's like you know, being in a new house. There's so many rooms and, you know, different areas for activities. Uh, we're recapping 2020 on this show and looking forward to 2021. Still a lot of uncertainty there, which we will get to. But 2020 Leaf, uh, in a lot of ways, was a letdown because we didn't get to experience tournaments like Wimbledon. The fans weren't a part of a lot of it, but... Got to give credit, got to tip your hat or, you know, tip your racket, however you say it, to the fact that both tours did manage to get three majors in and finish a large portion of their seasons. Yeah, it was a, it was a world of tennis turned upside down. And I think the fact that we were able to recover the U.S. Open, we were able to recover Roland Garros, make those a part of the schedule and make them meaningful. Um, you know, it says a lot about the players. It says a lot about how, you know, important tennis is to so many people and, I don't know. I feel like we were lucky to be a part of it. I think, you know, the ATP really got some things going after the Roland Garros, the women's side of things. Well, I think they're looking more towards next season to get yeah. things going. But, you know, I think we made the best of what has been a challenging and difficult time for so many people in our world. I think the women kind of did have a have the unfortunate break of how the schedule lined up, which places they were scheduled to go to. On the men's side, what what I really learned was that you know you know they played in a couple countries that were having lockdowns. What you saw was once you get everybody to the tournament, once you make sure everyone's healthy, hats off to both the men and the women for getting through. Like once we got everybody there, the initial tests were done. You didn't have you know players popping up positive and. Uh, you know, getting those positive tests in the semis or finals of tournaments. So everybody did a good job kind of watching out for themselves and being responsible. Yeah, I think so. I, I think Benoit Pair was That was one. The, like, the nobody outlier, bats a right? thousand. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but he, that's Benoit, and uh, that was a difficult situation for a lot of people, particularly some of the French players. Mm -hmm. um, I know Christina Mladenovic was impacted by that, her yeah. chance to go for the U.S. Open doubles title alongside Timmy Ababos, but... You know, these things happen, and I, but I think you're right. I think the numbers were pretty good. Once players were able to get to a place, the events unfolded well. You know, Cologne, Germany faced some challenges, and uh, 
you know, generally all tournaments face challenges, but I think we overcame them. What was your thoughts on calling some of these matches? You know, the U.S. Open, for example, we had a lot of, there's a lot of broadcasters on site in their, in their bubble, not exactly the players' bubble, but calling the matches sometimes on site, sometimes we're never on site for the tournaments. We're in the Los Angeles studios. But also, you know, the atmosphere without the fans there, it was different. It was unique. It, it was almost bizarre in a lot of ways. It, it sure was. And, you know, to call those matches, you know, I think we wanted to treat those matches with the same respect, the same passion that the players were bringing. I was so impressed with the players, how they were able to, you know, raise to a level of intensity that I think they're comfortable doing. There wasn't a lot of crowd support, obviously. And, you know, it made it special. We're watching other sports now unfolding with the same kind of challenges. And I think across the board, professional athletes want to compete. They want to play. And I think tennis world has been no different. Um, as a broadcaster, I think we have a responsibility to tell that story right. uh, the best that it is and as truthfully as it is. You know, we're not going to lie and say there are some empty couches <laughs> around the court in Cologne. But, you know, we're also going to say that, you know, Diego Schwartzman and uh, Sasha Zverev want this win as badly as any time in their career. And they did. They brought the energy and it was good to, you know, hear a little bit, too. Some of it maybe not, you know, PG, but it was good to hear that the passion and see that the passion was still there with or without the fans who everybody can't wait to get back, but making the best out of a difficult situation. Well, the last time we did this podcast, uh, my guest was Steve Weissman, and we were preparing for the final four of the ATP finals. That was won by Daniil Medvedev. Now, I'm not great at picking. I've made some brutal predictions on this podcast, but I liked Medvedev in that tournament before it started. And one of my reasons, Leaf, was that he seems like the quintessential rhythm player. He wants to play every week. He wants to find his groove. He started to pick that up, winning Paris. But Medvedev's performance in the ATP Finals, not losing a match, going through everybody in his way, wins over Nadal and then Djokovic and you know, in the finals, beating team after dropping the first set. Daniil Medvedev is uh, making sure people don't forget that he is a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, and uh, it's amazing, isn't it? We ended the year with the Russian doing big things. We started the year with Andrei Rublev on that 15-match win streak mm -hmm. going to the Australian Open. So Russia tennis was a part of the big story. But Medvedev at the very top of that Russian list, no doubt. I mean, this guy is unconventional. And I think in a conventional world like tennis, you've got a guy who approaches a game in a cerebral way. This coach that he's been working with, uh, Jill Cervera, I think that was significant for him. And I think this is evidence that coaching matters. Yeah. I mean, for a long time, uh, physically he wasn't able to go the distance. Mentally he was a little bit unstable. We saw that at the U.S. Open a couple of years ago, despite the great run he had. I mean, he has gotten himself together emotionally now. He handles things better. And I think physically now he can go the distance. So he's, they've addressed some things. They've problem solved. And I think that's a lesson for a lot of players. This guy has got some big things going. You have to take note of where this guy is in the draw at all times because he's got a chance. I mean, is he next on the list to win majors? I would think he's got a tremendous opportunity. The clay thing is weird, right, that he hasn't won a French Open match yet. Like that, that's getting to that bizarro range because it's not – you know, he's not just a big server that has trouble moving. You, you wonder why that hasn't happened. You'd expect him to get some success there. But you're 100% right. Nobody plays tennis like that, man. <laughs> like, the angles he takes, the bending down low with his flexibility at his, you know, 6'6 six, six frame or so, uh, I've been impressed by his commitment and his ability to right the ship in the face of all these odds. Him winning that tournament, beating team in the final, 
And that's where I want to kind of transition because we didn't know going into that final. I think there's still debate on the men's side who had the best year, who was your player of the year. Uh, the ATP hasn't announced that yet, but Leaf, if you had to pick between team Nadal Djokovic, the three obvious choices, who do you think the player of the year was? Well, you know, there's a, a distribution of success amongst those guys in different ways. You know, Djokovic is going to finish the year number one. He had some disappointing moments, obviously. Nadal won a 13th Roland Garros, you know, puts himself into the stratosphere. Uh, but I tend to think it's probably going to lean in my mind towards Dominic Team. I really feel the breakthrough winning his first major, the huge moments he had, the fact that he plays well on clay, made a valiant effort to go deep in Paris. And the breakthrough on a different surface other than clay. I really feel that he'll finish the year at number three, that he will be the player of the year or should be in my mind. 25 and 9 on the year, 17 and 2 in the slams. Now, everyone forgets because it feels like five years ago, not less than a year, the Djokovic match where he just couldn't quite finish, but he gave him all he could handle, had beaten Rafa and Zverev in that tournament. It was a physical five set match against Djokovic. The thing is that that loss that he had, I think if you're looking collectively, Nadal seems like he's a solid option for three, which is, you know, kind of funny to say because he just <laughs> keeps winning the French Open. But the thing about team only, is only, only wins the French, the French Open. Yeah. Just we're going to keep it going. <laughs> but the thing about it is he loses that French Open quarterfinal match to Schwartzman, that five-hour match, and, you know, has a little bit of a letdown late kind of phase in the fifth. If you look at historically, Leaf, the guys that have won their first slams, getting to the quarter is a pretty solid result to follow up on that, especially given how quickly the turnaround was. I would agree. I would go team as my player of the year, razor thin margin over Djokovic. And I do think that that French Open performance quarterfinal wise was pretty solid given that, you know, your life changed. You won a major there. You know, there was a lot of drama in that, both in who you played and how the final went down against Verov. But I give team the nod. It was a very complete year and he's somebody that committed himself to getting more fit, to getting, you know, to being great and being able to beat these guys on the biggest stage. Yeah. He plays with a tremendous variety. You know, he's not, uh, you know, a classic two-hander who plays deep behind the baseline. He does like to take that deep position, but I think the fact that he's able to transition a little bit more now, plays with underspin, but then gets around and works the forehand, obviously. I, I don't know. I think his game has a tremendous upside on all surfaces. Mm -hmm. you know, well, it's, yeah, I mean, you mentioned coaching, right? Masu has been a blessing for him. Exactly. And again, this is, I mean, you're the CEO of these players, of these corporations, and you've got to get people around you, surround yourself with a team that are going to give you the information, that are going to problem solve. And you have to believe in that culture that you've created because you're also going to have to make the hard decisions when things aren't working. You know, do I need to add people? Do I need to, you know, sort of make some changes? But I think for team, he's done everything so well. I think he's got himself in a great situation with the team he's in. And, Yes, it's an individual sport, but as we've seen from so many players, including Medvedev, and even on the women's side, you know, Jen Brady, you, you surround yourself with the right team, you work on the right things, you can problem solve and make big things happen, particularly players who are transitioning that first occasion into the big time. I think we've seen Zverev make tremendous strides with his team around him. Uh, he's taken another step now to get over the line, hasn't he, by handling, yeah. hiring David Ferrer. That's something that Andy Murray did so mm -hmm. so well, you know, getting Yvonne Lendl into the fold. Suddenly he's winning majors. So I think they're all, these guys at a certain level are going to need that extra push over the cliff, as you would say from Spinal Tap, you know, <laughs> just to go a little bit further. Yeah. You know, and they want to try and get every edge they can. So it's important that they find the right people, that they're hearing the right things, and... Did you identify what the problems are? Yeah. You know, and 
a guy like Sasha Zverev, he's got a few issues to address. And you've got, you've got to find the right answers to those so you can become a guy who's raising major titles. So you're saying they all need to find a way to turn it up to 11? You've got to saying? find a way to go to 11. <laughs> I would uh, I agree with pretty much all that. I'd also just want to add that team specifically, all that's left to prove is beating these guys at majors. and Because he can beat any one of these guys on any surface in a best of three match. He's proven that he's the only guy... It wouldn't even throw Medvedev in there just yet. That beats these guys on a consistent basis. You know, Djokovic said what team did in that tiebreak against him was incredible. He has that confidence. And, you know, confidence, it's cliche, but it's, a, it's an interesting thing. When you have success, you feel like you're coming into your own. It, it can be a different thing. Djokovic, on the other hand, uh, you know, if he is the player of the year, it's well-deserved. I don't think anyone's going to argue that it was a year that I think is going to be studied by the uh, tennis historians for many to come. 41-5. and five, Four titles on the year, played a ton of tournaments. Every loss he had was an event because it was Novak Djokovic losing and how it went down. But Leaf, do you realize that 41 and 5 for anyone else's career year, best thing that's ever happened? It's probably his third best year ever, if that. Yeah, I mean, Novak's is, you know, he's obviously box office because of all the many achievements, and he wants and has ambitions to be the greatest player of all time. I Makes mean, no mistake about it. He's letting everybody know that's the goal. Absolutely. And and why not? I mean, he's got enough money to, you know, he doesn't have that. He's a generational type of income that he's got. So, yes, he wants to achieve these goals. And brilliant season, but a season marred by a lot of unforced errors. You know, the incident at the U.S. Open and, uh, you know, the Adria tour with the coronavirus incident, that was unfortunate. So the... You know, we've had some times where Novak has been, you know, head-scratching a little bit. So more like off-court drama than on-court drama for Novak. You know, you just hope that he can continue on the road that he's on. He's, he's part of the tennis story, and we need him to be in the, in the right mind. I thought, I, I think the French Open final, I should say, was um, unfortunate. It was, in, in, in hindsight, kind of foolish that we all fell hook, line, and sinker to, you know, Rafa is the underdog. Like, Rafa should never be the underdog on that surface. <laughs> It was unfortunate Djokovic didn't, you know, compete harder and didn't have more of a match. Like, I don't know what, whether he was just off, Nadal was playing lights out, but it was a, a beatdown of epic proportions. But Djokovic is younger than these guys. The the health and the injury issue, I know everybody's had their issues, but you, you get the sense that he's going to be the one that's going to last the longest. His body will hold up the most. So the U.S. Open incident, which we don't need to rehash, might have robbed him a chance of, you know, it did rob him a chance of that slam that he was the favorite to win. But I go the other way. I mean, I think he's going to have so many chances to win majors going forward that I'm not in the camp of that's going to be the, the difference maker. I just like his opportunity to collect slams more than the other guys. And I think when we're looking back at it, it might not be the deal breaker of whether he's the greatest of all time. Yeah, I mean, Novak is, what, 33 years of age? I mean, yeah. he's the young, you know, Nadal's 34, Roger's 39. You, know, you feel like there's nothing stopping this guy. I mean, it's weird to say, though. It's like, even with Nadal, even with Federer, you think Federer's 39, which we're going we're gonna to get to in a second. Rafa, it's an unbelievable will that he has and how he keeps owning the French Open, but he has got to be like that perfect machine. Like, he has to get ready, like he's, you know, has to get his body in the right shape to go on these runs. But with Djokovic, it's every tournament he's in, you're like, doesn't matter what form he's in, I trust this guy in a big moment. Yeah, and what's remarkable about Novak is that he can beat so many different players in so many different ways. You know, Roger comes at him with this greatest attacking game of all time, 
and Djokovic is able to defuse that. At Wimbledon, it was a couple of match point moments that defused it. Nadal comes at him with the high bouncing consistency and power, and he breaks that down. And even Andy Murray will come at him with variety and, you know, sort of going the distance. And he wins that way. So he beats different players and handles different approaches to the game. This guy's, boy, he is a rough customer. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Leif Shiras on the TC Live podcast. We continue to recap 2020. Uh, Leif, another thing to really get into is that kind of debate that we've talked about for years on end now. The all-time greatest list and the slam list is now tied for the first time with Federer and Nadal each at 20 and Novak at 17. People are going to look at this and say the obvious is Roger's going to be 39. It's going to be hard for him to keep going and keep collecting slams. Looking at Federer looking at how he played Australia, showed a lot of heart in even getting to the semifinals, but was banged up and really just shut it down from that point forward. I have to question what to expect from him going forward. And in your mind, will Federer, the elite player, still be there? And if so, in what form? A, a top three player, a top five player, second week of a slam? What to expect from Roger? Yeah, I, I, you took the words out of my mouth. I, I feel like Roger's going to be in the second weeks of majors. I think he's going to have opportunities to make deep runs. I trust physically that he'll be back. I know he's had two surgeries on the knee. The, the first one wasn't completely right, and they got the second one in to clean it up. But it seems like he's back, he's training, and... You know, it's like Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire. And Ginger Rogers said, you know, Fred, I'm really tired of all that. Why do we have to practice so much? And Fred Astaire said, that's because we can make it look so easy. And that's yeah. a little bit of what Rogers was like. Right. But he puts in the hard work. He puts in the preparation. So when he does get on the court, I mean, we do tend to mm -hmm. think it's all easy. But Roger Federer puts in the hard miles. Expect him to be ready when we have tennis next. You know, that's still going to develop in terms of the schedule and the weeks and all that. But I, I do think Roger is going to be a big part of it. Yes, he's 39 years of age, but someone like Ken Rosewell, the, the Aussie great, the Hall of Famer, I mean, he said, sort of set the standard for guys who can play very deep into their career, winning ATP titles into their 40s. You know, but I, I know that Roger uh, won majors at 35. Ken Rosewell won a major at 37. So we'll see whether Roger can perhaps maybe notch another record. Could he win another major at 39? I think he might need a little help from the draw. The uh, under 30 crowd's going to love that reference. Fred <laughs> <laughs> there. that's for under 40 even. Uh, I want to ask you this, as someone that played as well and was in those locker rooms and saw greats come up on the way up, own the sport, and then on the way down, is there a moment in the locker room where you can kind of feel collectively it's not the same guy? And I'm wondering if that might happen, if that is a situation with a guy like Federer, where obviously everyone respects what he's done, but... Is, are there those moments in the in the locker room where the tour can collectively feel like this isn't the Roger that's dominated the sport, like he's more vulnerable? <laughs> well, if it is, it's pretty minor. I mean, in in my era, it was you know Sampras and Agassi and you know Rafter, and then these guys were walking pretty tall, and they always will. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there's always going to be yeah. an impression that they're going to make. Yet, 
you know, the more often the guys get them, the more the belief changes. Right. I think the perception in your own mind about where you stand against these guys can change. Um, yeah, uh, I, I don't think so. You know, I think, okay, Roger, what, maybe got two or three points a match from guys who were intimidated. Maybe he doesn't get so many free ones right. nowadays, you know? So um, you have to feel like your best chance, you're, the way you think and approach is this is my best chance. Right. I've got a guy at 39 and, you know, he still walks pretty impressively. And, you know, right. they're always going to have that aura when they walk in the room. So you've got to find that in yourself right. to overcome it. I guess the best way to phrase it would be, like, you're obviously going to respect what these guys do and the will yeah. that they have to win close matches and come up in the big points. But the positive would be don't look so much at past results. Like, I got destroyed in a major by him. Okay, well, that yeah. was when he was, you know, playing a little better, more healthy. I yep. do think that the competition, some of these newcomers, though, they're starting to push up. Like, this is a generation that we're seeing. And even, you know, the newcomers on the tour this year, like Yannick Sinner coming up, we're starting to see, okay, this is this is the time for the next generation, the next-gen guys to really make their move. And it's good to see because, you know, in sports, you want to see the next face, the new era. Yeah. Uh, teams leading the pack. Zverev is right behind him. Obviously, Yannick Sinner is, you know, a lot of eyeballs on him, but let's not, you know, forget Felix Auger-Aliassime. He's just outside the top 20. Denis Shapovalov, he got into the top 10 for one week. So he's had a quick taste. He had a cup of coffee. Volatile, yeah. for sure. Because when the U.S. Open, it was it was great to see. He puts it together. Yeah. Um, you'd like to see more consistency from him, I think, is yeah. a big thing. Because the game's has, there. He has the explosive yeah. artistry, that big game. When he gets it right, he's like a... You know, you, you hate to compare it to someone like Rod Laver, but Laver had that ability to raise his level of play mm -hmm. and blow guys away. Yeah. You know, um, so Shapovalov's got a wonderful future, and he's another of these guys. He's made some initial breakthroughs. Oje Aliassim to Sinner, first Grand Slam quarterfinal at Roland Garros, and really the only guy to challenge Rafa in a set. Yeah, serve for it, yeah. you know, was there. Um, so, you got to also con consider, I mean, I know he's top 10 now, but Rublev, where he came, yep. is probably the most improved, if, if that is an official award to get to. <laughs> uh, but he's another one, and we're starting to see the, the teens and early 20s guys knock on the doorstep. Felix's game has been incredible. There's uh, some serve issues, not quite at this Zverev level, but you'd like to see him, you know, clean some of that up. But he thumps the ball out there. It's, it's a joy to watch. Yeah, I, th I think Felix has... Again, a, lo a lot of talent. I think Dennis maybe has the smoother working machinery. I think OJ Aliassim needs to work on a few things, particularly his serve. I think his backhand, he needs to shore that up a little bit. But the guy's got a huge upside, one of the best heads in the game, I think, FAA. He's, he's got a really nice way of approaching the game. But again, the team around him is going to be vital. Coaching matters, you know, so you've got to have, you know, your CSP, your chief, or CPS, your chief, chief problem solver. You've got to get over these problems so you can make big things happen. Otherwise, the longer issues stay around, the more they begin to become toxic and erode your confidence. They do. I don't want to leave the ladies out because they had their uh, heck of a season as well. Uh, the WTA already did announce their player of the year officially, and it went to not really a surprise, Sophia Kennan who won a major, got to a final of another, finishes uh, the year at number four. The final she lost was a beatdown, like we'll call it what it is. But still, the most consistent result in majors won two titles, the uh, Lyon in addition to the Australian Open. I have no problem with her winning the award, though I do think it speaks to the fact that it was disjointed in a pretty wide open tennis season. But props to Kennan for winning that Australian Open and uh, becoming a force now, a consistent top five player. 
Yeah, and I've, I, I think she had the, a brilliant season. I mean, a breakthrough in Melbourne that was, you know, just so impressive. Again, great head on her shoulders. Her game has a lot of room for growth, too. I think we're seeing it in the women's side of things. You've got so many talented players all making breakthroughs. A lot of players winning majors on the WTA. And that's a sign of great things to look forward to. Obviously, Naomi Osaka, brilliant in her play at the U.S. Open. And she's got some upside, too. I mean, all these games are still right. evolving. And you feel like these games are, they seem like they're going to stick around. Kennan has a very dependable game. And I think Osaka's finding their dependable side, too. Kennan, and I've said this before, when she kind of sulks around out there, it's actually a good thing. Like she's one of the few that when you see her kind of angry and, and talking to herself and, you know, stomping around the court, she actually raises her level. Yeah. Because at Australian Open, you mentioned, she beat great players. It wasn't like the draw just miraculously yeah. opened up. And she won a number of matches from a set down. She mm -hmm. won a couple of three-setters. I think yeah. one was with Coco Golf. That was yeah. a nice win. So she's had a brilliant year. And what was amazing to me, I think she played in Rome and lost in the first round. Six love, six love. Was yeah, it to Victoria it was, Azarenka? Yep. Mm -hmm. And then went to, uh, you know, then went to the finals. It's, yeah. She gets to the final. So, I mean, talk about problem solving. I mean, she's got a good head on her shoulders and I think the kind of confidence that makes her a little bit bulletproof, you know, bad result. I'll get over that. I've yeah. got, I've got the confidence. Flip the page. Yeah. And, and she's again, problem solver. I think Osaka, it's funny to say that she, her year was kind of under the radar, but she's the one right now that we're thinking long-term could be that transcendent player. I think it's pretty clear. She's got three slams now, which that in of itself sets her apart from a lot of players. And you talk about everybody's A game. Right now, women's tennis, her A game is the best game. Like when she's on, when she's serving at an amazing clip, and she's really pummeling those ground strokes. I mean, I thought she got in better shape. I thought her mentality... Crazy how long this year was, right? Australian Open, she loses the Coco Golf in a match that, all due respect to Coco, Osaka was just terrible in. But she comes back, gets ready for the U.S. Open hard court, goes to the final of Cincinnati, pulls out with an injury, and then goes through the U.S. Open, wins some tough matches, some tough three-setters. Osaka is the person that if you're buying stock, if you're looking at the market, right, she's the <laughs> one to invest in because she's more likely than not going to be on and be a dangerous threat to win multiple more majors. Yeah, she's she's like Tesla. She, she's <laughs> roaring. Yeah. Have you got shares in Tesla? And we need to. Everybody <laughs> needs to. I'll, yeah, yeah I, I would have shares in Osaka, the way she plays and the kind of tennis she brings. I mean, again, she has the kind of game when she gets on a roll, she's a little bit like a Serena Williams. She can overpower players. She's got shot making. She's got a bit of artistry at the right times. And I think in the women's game, the ability to serve as strongly as she does. I mean, that is Second serve, especially. She, incredibly vital to have an important point and one swing of the racket. You can get that point, take a little pressure off yourself, and put some pressure on your opponent. I mean, that's something that the Williams sisters have been doing for years, and I think Osaka's taken a page from their book. And boy, you can drive your game, drive your confidence and your winning score with your serve. Boy, that's tough to beat. Her year, uh, especially the second half, was good when she came back to the U.S. to play those tournaments. I mentioned, uh, we're going to do this on the air, right? Svatek. Svatek. Oh, Iga Svatek. Svatek. Svatek, okay. yeah. I should know that. It's just uh, unfortunate. Pronunciation's not my thing, but her year, incredible to win the French Open. Go from, I think, outside the top, you know, outside of the top 50. Uh, yeah, going from number 61 now to number 17 on the year. Her first title was the French Open. And make no mistake about it, we, there's this 
preconception leaf with like major wins that it might be flukish where the draw opens where things happen you play the tournament of your life and that can still be true but Halep beat down cannon <laughs> in the final beat down there was no yeah. mistake that she was the best player in that tournament and her game as a teenager you would think is only going to get better it was as impressive a performance as we've seen i mean how many games did she lose in total was it 28 yeah it was under 30 i believe i think yeah. it was 28 games that she lost over the course of seven matches, which is, you know, I, that goes into the Borg-Nadal level of domination on clay. I can't think of a, a woman dominating at that level, but it, it was brilliant. And I think what you're looking at in this young player is she's got a game very suitable for clay. She's got extreme grips on her forehand, an excellent two-handed backhand. And I, I what I like about her most, I think, is her character. You know, she's not afraid to travel with a, a psychiatrist or a psychologist to get... Yeah you know, her head right. Again, unconventional in her right. approach to the game. And I think in a conventional world, which tennis is, everyone's sort of trying to gain a little bit of that edge, trying to get the best of themselves. And I, I think she's found that. I mean, the questions moving forward are going to be, okay, how can she play on a faster court? Mm -hmm. Do those extreme grips, right. would that be a challenge for her on grass? And I know grass is, you know, more high bouncing than years ago, but, you know, how does it work on a fast hard court? You know, can she adjust to those kinds of things because she certainly has the character and the talent to make it happen we saw that in paris in spades the uh, best example of as you said problem solving i can think of is fourth round 2019 french open help wipes the floor with her same exact round yeah, same exact exactly. matchup completely different result yeah and again th those are adjustments i mean that's a okay chalkboard moment let's make a positive mm -hmm. out of that obviously she I, did that i own up to it i got beat bad <laughs> let's see what we can do to move on i made a career out of that <laughs> <laughs> of, of lulling people into like okay yeah, I, they no, think i'm terrible because bad they beat losses me so bad. i've got a lot of those okay <laughs> i can get over this never really did but i, I did have sometimes bad sometimes yeah but I, again you again problem solving uh -huh. surrounding yourself with good people I mean, tennis is such a tough sport. You're out there on your own, you're yeah. on an island, and you need to have all that support and preparation, and she's got that. Before we move on, I do want to mention quickly, uh, give a lot of credit to somebody else on the tour who had a great season, Victoria Azarenka. I, I don't want to forget that. Cincinnati, she wins, didn't have to play in the final there, but just her match results, getting to the final of the U.S. Open, beating Serena, where she got, again, obliterated in the first set. This is someone that's been through a lot off the court as well as on the court, and, you know, I know we're kind of we're changing the uh, what we think of how old what old age is in tennis, but she is older. There was a lot of people that thought that she couldn't get back to this level, and there's Victoria Azarenka this year, firmly having one of the top three or four best seasons. And uh, it was just good to see someone that got her mental right, took a positive outlook, and uh, the results spoke for themselves. Yeah, and I, I think she's an inspirational player and an inspirational athlete. Obviously, a mom traveling with her son and making that right and that was a real challenging time for her so i think it's uh we can get a lot from her and uh, i think she has to take such wonderful pride in you know the efforts she had and the achievements she had this season so i'm looking forward to see how she does next year because i know that she would like to get back and maybe win a major because that clear signs that she can get there and give herself a chance and that's what it's all about is giving herself a chance you know, winning a major is not on the men's side, obviously. It seems like a more exclusive club. The women's game has opportunities, and, and one of those opportunities being that we're looking for major 24 from Serena if it's going to happen. What was once seen as pretty much a sure thing now might not be the case, and she's the same age as Roger Federer, so she's going to be going into a season, you know, 39 pushing 40, where 
we're starting to have more and more doubt creep in. And I think that's a natural, you know, reaction, both of the public perception and of herself, because the older you get, the more chances it's squandered. You know, this isn't an unlimited opportunity. I've just, I'm just curious your thoughts on how, you know, her health and her, you know, even ability to go through the gauntlet might be I mean, affected going forward. Yeah, you know, I, I think with the many challenges she's faced over the course of her career, I think she does enjoy the ride, however bumpy it can be, how many pressures she has to face. I think she's always looking for the next challenge and trying to find a way to get through it. I mean, she will have to do something that I don't think another woman has ever done and win a major at her age. I mean, I think she's the oldest major champion at 35. I believe she won the Australian Open. How old was Martina's last Wimbledon. Yeah, I'm not sure of that. But I, I, I do I don't agree. think if she was she, older than 35. She's definitely would be, without question, the oldest if she wins another yeah. one. Yeah, and she's going to tie the record and surpass it. She'd be have to, having to do it at, a, at an age when most players are sitting on the sidelines. Maybe they're coaching, but they're <laughs> you know having an iced tea watching from the Royal Box. But I think if there's anyone who can do it, it's Serena. I mean, this is a woman who, can, who despite all her many achievements, she still has ambitions in the game. And that's carried her a long way. I think she's comfortable off court, yeah. had a wonderful family, and she's got a nice team around her. And again, she's, again, going in the right direction. Right. She's put herself in the position before. Just give herself more chances, and she'll probably go through. She clearly enjoys it, loves the ride. Again, generational wealth. She wouldn't be here if it wasn't for right. the challenge. Um, my thing with her is it is pretty much exclusively for me about her health and her form physically going into these tournaments because maybe with the exception of Osaka I still believe in one match everything on the line if Serena's on she can take out anyone like that's just who she's been and who she still is just got to wonder physically what we saw at the French Open where I just don't think it, it is going to happen if we can get back to having Wimbledon and having these opportunities that seems to be for me with her serve, her best chance to do it yeah. is at the All England Club. I think I think so too. And you know, Roger Federer, you know, took time off, didn't play Roland Garros. He felt it was too tough on Same. the body. Yeah. You know, maybe that's going to be too long a road for Serena. She hasn't mm -hmm. had a, a win in Roland Garros, I think, in a number of years. But um, you know, if she can focus her tennis in Melbourne, in New York, in London, those are her best chances, I think, for for majors and where the conditions are a little faster. And she can play the kind of tennis that Naomi Osaka is playing, but she's got to have a better day than Naomi if they're going up head to head. More with Leif Shiras on the TC Live podcast here on the Tennis Podcast Network. Big news here, uh, news to me, we got the Hall of Fame voting process that's they're getting tabulated as we speak. And Leif, somehow, some way, you're a Hall of Fame voter. <laughs> Well, you know, if you stay around long <laughs> enough, like I have, I've, I've been fortunate enough to be around the game for a long time as a player, as a broadcaster, yeah. and now as a, you know, one of the many uh, voters, at least I do for current players, players who've just recently retired within the last five years. So it's exciting to be a part of that. We take our job very seriously, and, you know, we want to acknowledge the players who are generally deserving of, of this accolade. The 2020 class, and I'm interested to talk with you as someone that voted on the process, uh, I didn't know beforehand that it is such a short window. You only get a couple of years to really be on the ballot. And by by word of uh, the Hall of Fame voting process, the, the term is out there for the layman people, is that they're not competing against each other. You can vote for anybody in the class. Uh, the criteria, obviously, is, you know, how well you've done consistently, major success. There was a little note in there that was, you know, quality person and, you know, humanitarian categories as well. But this year's class is interesting. We have Leighton Hewitt, who seems like, for my money, the closest thing to a lock that there is in the class. You have Lisa Raymond, Jonas Borkman, uh, Juan Carlos Ferrero, 
uh, and then Sergey Ruggiero as well, who won a couple French Opens. So it's an interesting class. Your thoughts on, I guess, first Hewitt being, if he is a surefire candidate, and what the resumes of the other candidates kind of speak out to you positively and negatively? Yeah, no, I think the Hall of Fame balloting, you know, 75% of the votes and you're in. I know they have a fan voting as well, so the fans have been able to participate. Um, but someone like Leighton Hewitt, he, he seems like a sure thing. First ballot Hall of Famer, you know, he tends to represent that Australian tradition so well. A former world number one with major titles. You know, hugely important in Davis Cup. And, and obviously, when you get to number one in the game and, and been as dominant as Leighton was, you feel like... Uh, He's probably a shoo-in. But also, I think longevity is key. I think you need to have a player who, who's been around a long time, who's set a high standard for a number of years. I don't want to say that they're a transcendent, but they certainly have to be, I would think, a player right. who has made an impression on the game that's been significant. In terms of longevity, I'm glad you brought that up. Because there is the singles versus doubles. Like, doubles achievements are going to count equally in, in this regard in a lot of ways. What Lisa Raymond and Jonas Borkman did for that game. The longevity on the singles side is why Hewitt, to me, is, is definitely going to go in. Ferrero and Bruguera weren't exactly... like They have accomplishments. Ferrero was a world number one major winner at the French Open and a finalist at the U.S. Open. Bruguera won two Frenches and, and lost in a French Open final but they didn't really have the match wins and the years on top and in the top five, top 10 rankings that other Hall of Famers really have. Yeah, and I think these are the, the complexities that voters have to wrestle with, just like they do uh, in Canton, <laughs> the NFL. <laughs> in and Toronto. Also, and, and for the <laughs> Hockey Hall of Fame and the baseball writers, you know, they all have to take their job seriously and look at these players and say, you know, were these players worthy of this kind of recognition? Because it is the ultimate recognition, and um, the standard should be high. I mean, they really like yeah. we're not trying to ruin everybody's dreams, but they, it should be hard <laughs> breaking to get into the Hall of Fame of yeah, any sport. I think so. And that's why it, it's the Hall. It's that ultimate recognition of the ultimate contribution to the game. I mean, greatness. Everyone's definition is a little definite, uh, a little different. Um, but I think there are some, you know, achievement, longevity, uh, stature, uh, transcendence. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's also various levels of uh, outside the game. You've got, uh, you know, tournament directors, you've got instructors. So there are a lot of facets to the hall. Um, I, I myself am only involved on the player side, but there's mm -hmm. certainly other considerations too. You know, Nick Boliteri getting in a player, yeah. you know, for many years, obviously for Impact a lifetime. On the game, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, these guys, you know, Dennis Vandermeer, uh, I think, is being considered this year for acknowledgement. So there are a lot of, you know, considerations for the hall and the players are just one of them. I do want to mention briefly on Hewitt. To me, I, I see him as a very similar comparison to what Andy Roddick was for American tennis. That was Hewitt for Australia. He, he carried the mantle that the all-time greats from his country kind of left. And while he might not have achieved the major success that they did, pretty much put it squarely on his back to be like, I'm going to carry Australian tennis till hopefully another generation comes forward. Both those guys are finding out that might not be happening. And in a way, I think we start to realize they were underappreciated because the next gen guys from their countries haven't exactly even had, you know, their success. Right. I, I think that's a good comparison. I mean, Roddick and Hewitt, they were sort of links to the tennis that was before them. For Roddick, it was Sampras and Agassi. And for Hewitt, it was, you know, Rafter and these guys who were so important. Mark Philippoussis was also close to winning majors. But Hewitt represents, I think, the, that Australian tradition of 
mateship and intensity and love of the green and gold. I right. mean, he was a Davis Cup hero for them as a player, and now as a captain, he's you know trying to fly the flag. So yeah. he's done a number of things that have definitely have distinguished him as a, a Hall of Fame favorite. Maybe the guy most most wanted to be punched by the other player. <laughs> I feel like he was always in the thick of it and got under a lot of players' skin. But that, you know, he was a heck of a player and heck of a competitor. I think, hey, he had a feisty nature. He was combative and competitive. He was, you know, small in stature. He wasn't six feet tall, so he had to battle more than others. He wasn't getting free points, so he had to win with the kind of qualities that can make for a champion. You know, we see that in a lot of guys. So uh, good for him. Hopefully, uh, you know, he'll be a part of the hall. We'll see how the voting goes. Before we look ahead to 2021, Leaf, uh, I want to mention, I want to get your thoughts on who you think the Americans, you know, the post-Rotic generation that we haven't seen really win slams on the men's side, on the men's side, of course. But men and women, who do you think had the best American seasons? Not necessarily the best player, but, you know, who do you really like and uh, really were a fan of this year on for the uh, Stars and Stripes. Yeah, and it, it was a tough season, I think, for a lot of the American guys. And our top man, John Isner, opting not to play as complete a season because of the travels and the COVID. And I understand that. He's a new family man. So John was spending more yeah. time at home in Dallas, which is great for him. Um, you know, one guy I felt who, who stood out in my mind, and I th we talked a little bit about it uh, on the way uh, to the studio today was Tommy Paul. Oh, yeah. you know, we feel like you know he had some real breakthroughs. I think he finished the year just outside the top fifty, but he had you know a number of match wins. He had a you know breakthrough getting through to his first semifinal, and I think he showed that he can play at that level. And again, belief is such a big part of it. And I think he believes he can play at that level and stay there. Friend of the show, I also want to point that out <laughs> was a, a guest on this show this year. But yes. no, he talked about getting himself back in shape after the quarantine. Um, you know, beats Zverev, beat, had a top five win, which got him going. This was a guy that was struggling at challengers, found out how hard the grind is. Junior prodigy does not equal success in the pro game, but he really got himself in shape playing good doubles as well. On the women's side, I know Kennan was the player of the year, but somebody we both love, Jen Brady, what she did with her year, her belief and her rising up the rankings. Uh, Tennis.com named that match against Osaka in the semifinals match of the year. And it's hard to argue because... That was one of the best quality matches, man or woman, I have seen in a long time. Yeah, no, I, it was a great match and a great year for Jennifer. You know, we've been talking a lot about, you know, players making and, and surrounding themselves the right way and, you know, building their game. She did something very unconventional. Instead of training in the U.S., she traveled to Germany with her coach, Michael Gessner, and I know they were in Regensburg, Germany, which is where Gessner is based out of. So she moved her whole operation to Germany and trusted her game and her training to this German coach, and it really worked. You know, and again, I think this is something out of the box, something that, you know, you wouldn't normally do, but I think it shows that if you could do something a little bit different, challenge yourself, put yourself in an awkward place where you need to develop, I, I think it, it showed it really worked for Jen Brady. Maybe other players should consider these kinds of things. You know, don't do what everyone else is doing. Try and find your own direction. I think we saw a little bit of that with another American that's doing better, Taylor Fritz. He was one of the few, I think, two years ago to play the clay court swing. Yes. He went over, you know, he's going to be away. He's going to make that commitment, but he's going to commit himself to, you know, having a good year and, and working on his game. But yeah, two months on the clay circuit. Not Taylor. easy. And it wasn't easy. And he, what, he played through that. And I think those are the kind of character building moments. Mm -hmm. uh, I know that at the time he was trying with a coach and his family. And he was trying to make it work, and he yeah. got the best out of it. I mean, those are the kind of seeds you plant then that might come to fruition now. Right. And I know as a former college tennis player, Princeton guy, <laughs> 
you're hopeful that somebody looks like it could be Jen Brady could break the streak that I think since Macaro, no college player, man or woman, has won a Grand Slam. Yeah, I know. I in think the singles game. I think so Todd Martin might have been a finalist. You know, yeah, he played his college tennis. We've had Kevin Western. Anderson get to finals. That's and, right. You know. University of Illinois. There's yeah. Kevin. Good. But good. I think call. Brady's the Brady's the one to snap that streak. Come on, Jennifer. For all <laughs> friends at the ITA, and um, but obviously yeah. the UCLA Bruin had a brilliant season. You have to like her game. You know, I think Gessner has got her thinking in a positive way. She's got a nice backhand. Her forehand is a big shot. You know, and like we've been talking about with Osaka, Brady's got a nice serve. She's got it a very good, good serve yeah. and a very effective second serve. So players can't pick on that. So you like to see that on the women's side when you can serve with strength. Last thing on this before we look ahead and wrap up the 2021's calendar. Uh, Coco Goff, somebody that everybody loves for obvious reasons in tennis, Still not even 18 years old. A lot of tennis ahead of her. The problem solving is pretty simple. That serve. <laughs> if, if she can fix the serve, she goes from a threat to actually a legit contender in some of these tournaments and even majors. But you know, we saw it. You know, we, we've seen it take down great, great players. So that's the, that's the thing I know she's working on. And I know we want to see improved. But minimize double faults on forced theirs. And the sky truly is the limit for her. Great athlete, great player, great person. I mean, she really... Grounded, which yeah. is hard to do at that, you know, <laughs> that stature. I mean, so much has, <clears throat> I don't want to say been given to her because she's earned it, but she's got all these wonderful talents and she treats them all with such respect. I think she's obviously got so much upside. As you said, though, like all players, you know, you got to address those issues that you're facing. Uh, feel good about the team around you. I know she loves her family and she's getting good input. So uh, I think good things are going to happen for her. I think so, too. Well, a lot of tennis in front of her. <laughs> want to point that out. Uh, Leif Shires, TC Live podcast. A blast chatting, as always. I do want to end on this. 2021, the calendar is still uncertain. The fluidity with the tennis season, I think most people outside the game don't realize it. On one hand, you know, Australia moving their dates, which is done out of necessity to get players into quarantine, have a practice bubble. We might not have Indian Wells. It's not looking good this year. The plus side being some of these other tournaments can kind of shift and, and adapt and take advantage of the schedule. So I'm bummed because I love Indian Wells. It's just one of the best tournaments, as you know. But it is good that there is at least the luxury in tennis to have some events when, uh, you know, we're not just sitting around waiting for anything to break. So I, I like the fact that the calendar can be adaptable. Yeah, and I mean, as sad as it was when, you know, this year Indian Wells was canceled ahead of the coronavirus, which actually turned out to be a pretty courageous first step in yeah. the tennis community. And here we are coming around to the very next season, and they might again be taking themselves off the calendar. It, it's terribly disappointing, but it, it's the real world we're living in. You know, I, I sense that the WTA and the ATP are making the kind of adjustments that they need to make. They're trying to create jobs for players. Uh, obviously, Four tent posts in our game, the Grand Slams, when they make moves, everyone needs to adjust to them. We saw right. that with Roland Garros. Now we're seeing a move by Melbourne to make a move later in the year. Okay, how's that going to adjust? Well, maybe we'll see some tennis in South Florida. I'm pretty sure we're going to see some tennis in the Middle East, but we're looking forward to hopefully right. having more tennis sooner than later. Props to Tennis Australia for figuring out a way to get this done. They're going to be spending a lot of money to do this. It's going to yeah. be chartering flights and the bubble you know, they're taking over the hotel, it looks like, in uh, Victoria, I think, to be able to practice. And it's a, it's an investment. It's a commitment. Uh, one thing that I saw, and again, nothing's super official with the other tournaments and the schedule. But, you know, our colleague, John Wertheim, who's also been on this show, was just throwing out possibilities. And again, not reporting anything official. But Miami after Indian Wells, owned by IMG, they own Fight Island. 
So maybe that's the, you know, that would be, I don't know if it'll happen, if it's even possible, but Abu Dhabi set up the infrastructures there. Maybe you can play some tennis. The point being that tennis is such a global game that I give credit to where credit's due, that we're, we're expending every, we're looking through every avenue, every resource to find a way to play tennis safely all over the world, wherever that may be. So while we might not have Indian Wells or Miami, it's good to have tennis and it's good to have opportunities. Yeah, I think we're going to see adjustments in the calendar. We're going to, you know, have to deal with what we dealt with last year, a little bit carrying over into 2021. Hopefully we'll have a vaccine. Hopefully we'll have things in place where we can actually have tennis and uh, we're all, you know, hoping for the best. We certainly are. Leif Shiris, this is a, uh, a pleasure to have you on this show, breaking in the new building. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll go over the resume, you know, the scoreline. I want to, <laughs> I'm going to really dive into that Wendell Leaf match uh, from Queens club on the next episode, really break that down of a film watch. Yeah. Well, <laughs> my career, you can encapsulate it maybe less than 30 seconds. We could fit it in now, but we'll maybe save it. <laughs> we'll save it. Leaf though. Seriously. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, uh, Rich. Pleasure for having you on here. And this was the TC live podcast on the Tennis Podcast Network. Find us on all your podcast platforms. And a special thanks to everybody out there for listening throughout the year for making us one of the top tennis podcasts in the industry. We will have more episodes from this building and hopefully remotely into 2021. I'm Mitch Michaels for Leaf Shires. This was the TC Live Podcast. Thanks and stay safe.